On March 22, 2022, four Israelis were murdered in a stabbing attack in Beersheba. In the same week, a terrorist shot and killed five civilians in Bnei Brak. Days later in Khadera, another terrorist attack occurred, in which two border police officers were killed and 12 civilians were injured. After this bloody week, the IDF initiated Operation Break the Wave, which the army defines as a counterterrorism operation conducted to thwart future attacks and apprehend those involved in terrorist activities against Israeli civilians. It's been 15 months since the operation's launch, and again this week, Israel was rocked by blood, including the killing of four more civilians in the terrorist shooting. So I reached out to Brigadier General Yossi Kuperwasser. He is the former head of the research division in the IDF's military intelligence division and former director general of the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. He specializes in the security dimensions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. According to Kuperwasser, the current flare-up of Palestinian armed violence is not coincidental, but the fruit of a carefully cultivated extremism that surrounds Palestinians on all sides, and the region's many terror groups are all too ready to embrace any volunteer. That's why I'm totally against this idea of lone wolves. These are not lone wolves. These are wolves that were bred by the incitement that comes from all these places. And uh, once you prepare them mentally to be a wolf, eventually they are going to carry out a terror attack. In this week of yet another surge of terror, I, Amanda Borsheldan, ask security expert Yossi Kuperwasser, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Yossi, thank you so much for joining me here in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. Thank you for having me. In this week in which we saw a terrible terror attack next to Ali, in which left four dead, in which we saw increased pushback in fighting in Jenin, I ask you, Yossi, what matters now? What matters now, well, on the short run, it's uh, finding a way to handle the terrorism coming from uh, the areas controlled by the Palestinians in uh, Judea and Samaria. And uh, the second thing, not less important, uh, we shouldn't uh, look only at that, 
is uh, to follow what's going on in the regional architecture, the way it changes with the talks between the United States and Iran about the nuclear project and uh, the relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran. A lot of things are happening on the regional uh, structures that change as we watch them. It is impossible to disengage the macro from the micro in this region in any case. But let's start with the micro. And I've lived here since 1999. So I was here during the second intifada and during the lone wolf intifada and other things of this nature. But it feels to me that something has changed somewhere along the line. And I was speaking with our military correspondent, Emmanuel Fabian, earlier this morning. And he mentioned the idea that the Gilboa prison brick of 2021 was a moment in time in which the Palestinians felt more emboldened and now we're reaping the fruits of this. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the Gilboa break uh, had some impact on, on the situation. Yes, it uh, created this uh, feeling in the Palestinian side that uh, we can outsmart the Israelis in some things. But I think more than that, it was the uh, series of terror attacks uh, that took place beginning in March last year uh, that uh, ignited the terrain in all places, uh, especially in the northern part of the Judea and Samaria, northern part of Samaria. And uh, we are still going on with this uh, battle against the terrorism coming from there since um, last March, March 22. And uh, we haven't yet found the solution. We managed to uh, put the pressure on them by the wave breaker operation that goes on day in, day out, uh, or actually night in, night out uh, in the, the northern Samaria area. But this by itself is not enough in order to really bring an end. Because the idea of this uh, operation is that we operate according to information we have in order to prevent and foil terror attacks. Extremely important, and we have good intelligence that enables us to reach uh, the terrorists in their homes before they are going to carry out the attack. Wonderful. And on top of that, it also allows us to have set some friction with the surrounding of these terror groups uh, that exchange fire with us. And most of the time we end up in a situation where we are not hurt and uh, those who shoot at us pay a price, which is good. But at the same time, we have not taken the necessary steps in order to handle those groups that we don't have intelligence about. And we have to realize we are not going ever to have the full intelligence picture about everybody and anybody who wants to carry out a terror attack. And so what happens is that from time to time, these groups manage to carry out more terror attacks. And uh, if we don't apply some tools that would uh, allow us to deal with those uh, attacks that we don't have intelligence about, this is going to go on. That's why I wrote and uh, I preach for more presence of uh, IDF soldiers along the main roads and even to put some uh, roadblocks and checkpoints along these roads, which is not the case uh, most of the time, so that if somebody go, goes out from the village of Urif, as uh, was the case uh, yesterday, and wants to carry out a terror attack in uh, Eli, he has to go through a checking point. And then uh, in the worst case, there's going to be some uh, fire exchange with the, with the soldiers and not with the civilians sitting in a hummus restaurant and uh, suffering, uh, being uh, totally exposed to, uh, to terrorism without uh, being able to defend themselves. So that's one thing I think. And I think that this move is also important from another aspect because what we have done so far was to separate totally 
between our fight against the terrorists and our relationship with the population in the in the areas where they operate from and we are trying to pinpointing point pointedly hit the terrorists but we don't uh, do anything about the, the people that support them and uh, they the, the economy of the middle of the areas where the terrorists are operating flourishes as if nothing happens we we make sure that everybody goes to work we make sure that everybody goes to work in israel or in the settlements or wherever and uh, they feel very safe nothing is going to happen to them and uh, even their economic condition is not going to be affected and the living standard is not going to be affected by the fact that there is terrorism from within them if we just put the roadblocks we add, we add two things first of all we will prevent some of the terror attacks that we should be able to stop on the way and secondly the population will start asking questions and say well we are paying a price uh, we also have to stand in the roadblocks uh, so maybe we'll uh, speak with those terrorists and tell them guys enough is enough Or couldn't they say, wow, we're paying a price. Let's speak with the terrorists and join up in order to fight the people who are putting so. the, ter- the roadblocks in. Some of them will do that. Some of them will do this. But uh, most of them, I think, will call on the terrorists to stop it because they're going to pay a price. And until now, they don't pay any price. By the way, being you were here for, say, you said from 1999. In 1999, I was the chief intelligence officer of uh, the Central Command, responsible for the situation. And uh, I know what happened during the Second Intifada. What brought the Second Intifada to an end was the, the understanding of the Palestinian leadership that they have to do something about it because they're paying a heavy price, not only... Uh, the terrorists amongst them, but the entire society was having was paying a price. The entire uh, Palestinian interests were paying a price, and uh, that's uh, that's not the case today. The Palestinian Authority is either totally uninvolved in what's happening and uh, just uh, watching from afar, or uh, encouraging the, the the terror attacks by paying salaries to the terrorists and by uh, joining in with their incitement, and they. have to be on the side of the terrorists and uh, that's how they feel and they don't do anything in order to stop it i think that the one of the reasons why they don't do anything to stop it is that the vast majority of the palestinian population don't don't feel any that they pay any price for what's going on i think for example that on, on top of uh, putting more roadblocks and checkpoints along the roads We can also uh, take steps in order to minimize the presence of Israelis in the Palestinian uh, cities. Because today, much of the economic flourishing uh, of the Palestinian economy is based on the presence of Israeli Arabs that come to uh, have commercial activity in those cities. And this is dangerous, and this is something that we should uh, at least suspend for a while. Why is it dangerous to have economic cooperation between... Uh, no, because it's dangerous for the people that enter the, the cities in, in a time like that. So uh, we should uh, suspend it for a while. And this by itself is also going to send a message to the Palestinians that there is a price for this uh, terror wave. Until now, this is not the case. And, they, and that's why the population, then you see it, they, they, after the operation in, uh, in Italy, they uh, spread uh, sweets, have celebrations. That's, and they, and it's, there's not, they don't pay any price for that. I definitely don't want to see the price paid by uh, hooligans from, uh, from within the, the Jewish uh, communities in the Samaria area that go into Hawara and uh, do all kinds of stuff and hit uh, cars and things like that this is terrible and should be highly condemned and prevented but the government should take steps that would uh, send us the message that there is a price instead we are busy all the time strengthening Abu Mazen 
not only that this is a waste of time because it's not going to be strengthened anyhow, but it uh, creates a situation where nobody pays any price for uh, for the ongoing terror attack that they support, that they encourage, and that they pay uh, salaries to those who perpetrate it. To the families of because uh, those the who families. perpetrate usually die. No, it's not. Some of them die. Some of them end up in prison. And uh, if you end up in prison, your situation is even better because you really get uh, a very high salary for life and, uh, from the Palestinian Authority. And we don't take any real steps on, uh, about it. The Americans are even worse than we are. They are very proud that they give more money and more money to the Palestinian Authority, even though they cannot give it directly. So they give it indirectly. They find all kinds of ways to uh, bypass Taylor Force Act that prevents them from giving uh, money to the Palestinian Authority. So they give it to all kinds of organizations that the Palestinian Authority is supposed to support. And uh, by that, they ease the pressure, the economic pressure on the Palestinian Authority and allows it to keep paying salaries to terrorists. This, this is totally ridiculous. And, and on top of that, the American uh, administration, in an unbelievable way, uh, makes the comparison between the victims of terror and the, and the terrorists that perpetrate the terror attacks. Which was walked back eventually. But let's talk a little bit about what you said a few minutes ago about getting information about organizations that we don't even know exist. And there's one organization that jumped into the news in the past year, and that is the Lion's Den. You don't hear about it so much in the past month, but Lion's Den all of a sudden popped up. Is that an organization that was even on the radar of intelligence? Well, I don't know because I'm not in the intelligence anymore, but but it definitely, in my mind, we were surprised. In my, my, in my mind, the Israeli intelligence was surprised again and again in the recent year or two. In this, because we are focused, we were focused in my mind on uh, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, and maybe to a lesser extent on the Tanzim. And uh, we were surprised again and again. We were first of all surprised by the fact that some of the terror, the initial terror attacks back last year, were perpetrated by people that were affiliated, not directly but indirectly with the Islamic uh, State and uh, not with any Palestinian terror, te- terror group. And then we were surprised by the rise of the Lions Den and the similar groups like uh, the Janine Battalion and all uh, similar groups uh, in, in each town, there's something like that. And uh, I, I don't think we, we were prepared. To the best of my understanding, we were not. It took us a while. We made the necessary adjustments, and we today familiar, well familiar with the with these groups. But uh, the rise of these groups uh, was an expression of something deeper, of the understanding of the Palestinians that uh, trying to move along the old lines of uh, uh, terror organizations that uh, follow certain uh, process of developing a uh, terror attack that we can spot on the way and the foil was the wrong uh, way and they should uh, prefer to work differently in a way that uh, makes it more difficult for Israel to find uh, in advance that some terror attack is in the making. And uh, this is uh, something that uh, can be done not from within the organizations, the known organizations, but from different uh, groups that uh, are not the old style organizations. That's what we've seen. That the net is uh, being cast broader and these grassroots uh, little groups are getting together and perpetrating attacks even as individuals. We've had that in the past too. And that they expect a payout at the end. Is that part of the calculus in perpetrating the small group attacks? They do get support from from all the organizations. They They get support from the Tanzim of the Fatah, Abu Mazen's group. They support them. 
they do get support from Hamas, they do get support from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And from time to time, they take, even take responsibility or uh, some sort of responsibility. Like, uh, like they, this week, we had yes. Hamas affiliated, but maybe not members. Of- they, they, they did everything of taking responsibility without taking responsibility. Exactly. So what is this about? This is about to, they want to distance themselves and at the same time let everybody know that they are involved. That's the, the, the you know, but in some cases, they actually did take even direct uh, responsibility. For example, for the explosive charge that uh, hit the uh, Armut car in, uh, in Jenin, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad said it's our engineers that uh, were responsible for that. So uh, when something succeeds from their point of view, they <laughs> take uh, responsibility and some in many cases, not full responsibility. And uh, But uh, there's an ongoing cooperation between the organized terror groups and the uh, less organized terror groups that uh, appear on the ground. And uh, they are supported by the ongoing incitement that uh, comes from all sources, from from Hamas, from Palestinian Islamic Jihad, from the Palestinian Authority, from Fatah, uh, from the media. Uh, Everything uh, promotes this uh, incitement and uh, hate indoctrination. And, uh, And that's why I'm totally against this idea of lone wolves. These are not lone wolves. These are wolves that were bred uh, by uh, by the incitement that comes from all these places. And uh, once you prepare them mentally to to be uh, a wolf, eventually they are going to carry out a terror attack. And you don't have the mind behind it. Worry if this is going to be Muhammad from uh, Jenin or Ahmad from uh, the village of Ureif. It's uh, this is the way it works, and we see it again and again. You don't see it in any other society. What other society <laughs> develops people that are going to kill innocent people, and they feel that they are doing the right thing? They're proud of what they're doing. It's it's totally crazy. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag. 
in a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. I want to walk you back to the mindset of somebody who has been raised in mother's milk on the on the Torah, on the scripture of harming Jews in order to reach this payout. Is the idea to sacrifice yourself for your family or in order to make your family secure by this pay-to-slay money? Or, or what is the mindset here? The mindset is much wider. It's a, Palestinians have a narrative that they, uh, the incitement is the effort to instill this narrative in, in narrative in the minds of any any Palestinian from day one, the day he was born, and uh, to keep him committed to this narrative all along this, of his life. And this narrative says, first of all, Jews are not a people. That's why they do not deserve a state. And they are just a religion. Secondly, uh, Jews never had the sovereign history in this piece of land. That's why they were fighting in the 1920s against the idea that the mandate was to reconst reconstitute a Jewish in, uh, national home in Palestine. They said there was never uh, such sovereign uh, uh, state, which is nonsense, of course. But uh, of course, there was a, a Jewish state in in so-called Palestine in Eretz Israel. And uh, the third element in this narrative is that the Jews are terrible creatures. And it's, it's a very anti-Semitic narrative. The Jews are terrible creatures. Nobody wanted them to live next to them. So they sent them away from Europe. The, the Europeans couldn't stand them. They sent them away. And uh, they sent them to this place because they thought that this is going to help them keep the Muslims away from Europe. And uh, the, they are terrible creatures, uh, according to all the lines of the anti-Semitic uh, European uh, versions of uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion and so on and so forth. And on top of that, there is the addition of the Muslim uh, anti-Semitic uh, approach to Judaism, that the Jews are the descendants of apes and pigs and all of that. And, uh, and because of that, there is no justification for the Jews to live next, next to us. Well, why are we to suffer? Nobody wants to live next to the Jews. Why, sh why should we Palestinians live to next to the Jews? And because the, the Jews are such uh, terrible creatures, it is allowed to kill them. And, uh, and the fourth element in this uh, narrative is that you are, if you want to be a good Palestinian, you have and you want to contribute to the struggle against Zionism that wants to bring the Jews to this place, you have to be struggling against it. You have to contribute to the struggle. And there are all kinds of ways in which you can contribute to the struggle. You can uh, write poems. You can stick to your land. Uh, you can uh, promote BDS uh, and fight uh, and, uh, against the legitimacy in Israel abroad. You can uh, use lower levels of violence and you can use higher level of violence. All of them are parts of the struggle against Zionism, and everybody who participates in the struggle against against Zionism should be appreciated and rewarded. 
And, uh, and the fifth element is that uh, our struggle is not only national, it's also uh, re uh, religious. We are fighting for Islam and for uh, the Palestinian Arab people. And, uh, th and there's no way to separate between the two. They're totally intertwined. Uh, that's why you always see that those who carry out the attacks, they speak about, they turn into shahids and uh, martyrs, religious martyrs. And, uh, and they uh, always speak on behalf of uh, Allah and uh, so they do that for, the, for, the, for Islam, not only for the Palestinian nationalism. And, uh, and the sixth element, which is also very important, is that we, are the, we the Palestinians, are the only victims of this conflict. And uh, the, the logic of victimhood, of course, justifies the ongoing uh, terrorism. And uh, finally, the, the final uh, element in this seven points uh, narrative is that uh, we should never accept Israel as a Jewish state. Because of all, the, all of the above, we should never accept Israel as a Jewish state. That's why the... Uh, conflict perpetuates because they are not ready to accept Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, democratic and uh, with full uh, rights for, to its Arab citizens. It doesn't matter. As long as it's uh, defined as a Jewish state, they are not ready to accept it like that. And that's why they and they make it clear for that for they fight for uh, Palestine to be free, as they say, from the river to the sea. They want to uh, the, the existence of Israel is, uh, is uh, something that is not acceptable. And uh, of Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people. They can see, some of them can see, some, even Hamas can see a certain uh, interim stage in which there is something called Israel, which is not the nation state of the Jewish people, but the nation state or the state of all its citizens. That can be some sort of an interim stage. But uh, it's a stage on the way of liberating all of Palestine. How many people do you think adopt all of these seven points? All of them. All of them. All of them. But so few actually take to violence. As I said, you can struggle in many, many ways. You can struggle politically. Abu Mazen would uh, rather uh, have a combination of uh, struggle that is mainly political and some violence. And most of the time he would uh, advise to use violence only in what he calls uh, popular uh, resistance or uh, peaceful popular resistance which means the use of non-explosive arms, knives, stones, uh, maybe sometimes ramming, uh, car ramming, and uh, that's not always, but sometimes it's also allowed. That's, that's what Abu Mazen most of the time thinks that it's the best way to, to gain progress towards uh, reaching the Palestinian goals, because he thinks that this will uh, minimize the international criticism and will create the conditions to put pressure on Israel. But he also says, well, but if Hamas decides to launch rockets and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad wants to use explosive charges, that's also fine. That's also legitimate. That's why he pays the terrorists from all organizations, regardless of what they're doing. He, he would pay Hamas, Hamas terrorists just as he pays Fatah terrorists. And uh, he makes no differentiation when it comes to paying because he respects them all. He prefers, he thinks, he advises them to stick to this popular resistance, that unlike what he would think as armed resistance. But it seems as though the armed resistance is on an upswing in the past several months, for sure, the Definitely. past year. Why is that? Why is that? Because you can't control it. 
you once you go on with this incitement and you justify the armed the armed resistance for many youngsters who didn't live in the time of the second intifada and didn't know and don't know what are the prices that are being paid and get the impression that there is no price being paid for them their own sacrifice is not a price is is a, a ticket to 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 paradise it's they are ready to pay the personal price The, and the, the families are not uh, not only not charged with the price they are respected and uh, have a lot of esteem from the, their society so there's no problem from their point of view to take the the risk of uh, uh, losing their own lives or being arrested or whatever that's that's something that they are ready to pay let's talk about what happened in Jenin this week in which forces went in and were surprised it appears by the vehemence of the opposition I don't, I don't think they were surprised by the vehement of the opposition. The, uh, we enter with Janine on a weekly basis at least, and uh, whenever we enter, the forces enter Janine, they are uh, attacked uh, vehemently by uh, many people with guns, and uh, I think this is well known. Uh, what uh, the, the new element in this last uh, operation was the explosive charge that uh, hit the, the car. If, it, if there was no explosive charge the car would have gone out and then nobody would hear about it and the use of the helicopter and the, the use of the helicopter was in reaction to the explosion explosion against the, the car because there was a need to protect the soldiers while they were evacuated we had seven people wounded uh, so there was a need to bring the, the helicopter to make sure that you can reach the the car and uh, evacuate the, the wounded people. Do you see the future of strike airstrikes in the West Bank after this uh, use of helicopters successfully? We may re- we may reach this point. It's, uh, it's not uh, in the immediate future, but we may reach that point. We prefer to uh, operate with ground forces. Although if the situation is going to deteriorate and we are going to pay prices for that, We may use uh, helicopters or other tools that uh, can make the same work from there. The difference is that you cannot hold arrests with a helicopter or with uh, all kinds of uh, air vehicles. You, if you want to arrest, and that's what we want to, we want to arrest. We don't come in order to kill anybody. We come to arrest people that we know that are in, in the midst of preparing a terror attack. And, uh, we prefer to arrest them than to kill them. Uh, because this will enables us to have more information and more intelligence that we need and because uh, if as long as we can uh, arrest them and not kill them it's uh, also from a moral point of view it's a, it's a better it's a better option but i believe something like 130 palestinians have been killed during these operations yeah, this was, year yes true but that's true because they are either refused to be arrested and started shooting at the forces so we had to shoot back or they was while we were uh, performing the arrest Uh, a lot of people from around the, the place where, where the arrest was taking place started shooting at the, the forces and we shot back. Uh, and some of some of the 130 were killed while they were actually carrying out terror attacks. It's, uh, that, that's uh, quite, uh, that happens quite often as well. Out of the 130, I don't have the exact count, but I would say that about 120 were terrorists either uh, directly involved in terrorism or shooting at our forces that forced us to shoot back. And about 10 were people that were uh, unfortunately uh, in the line of fire and uh, like, for example, Shirin Abu Akla and, uh, and this toddler uh, recently in Jenny. This happens from time to time. It's, uh, it's terrible, but 
generally speaking, I would say that uh, with the uh, extent, with the magnitude of the operations we carry out every night, we enter several places, highly dense uh, uh, areas, and uh, carry out an, uh, an arrest in such a in such an environment, and ending up with only very few uninvolved people that are uh, hit by our soldiers. It's uh, we we can uh, be satisfied in in general. Of course, any specific case should be checked and seen, and, and we need to see what happened specifically. So the breaking the waves operation has been going on for how long now? Fifteen months, something 15 like that. Fifteen months. In in your estimation, is it a successful operation, or should we be reevaluating at this point? First of all, it is a successful operation because uh, many, 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 many terror attacks were were foiled. And we prevented many terror attacks, and we were able to arrest many people that were involved in terror attacks after they carried the terror attacks. We, I think we don't have today anybody that we that carried out a terror attack that we haven't arrested already. Uh, so it's, uh, from that point of view, the, this was a very successful operation. That said, of course we have to reevaluate re all the time and see if this is enough. It's, it has a very wonderful contribution to our security, but not enough. The fact is that more terror attacks come up, and uh, that's why I'm saying that we have to strengthen our presence in the in the territories, put more roadblocks and checkpoints, and uh, and maybe even from from time to time create some more operations of friction operations. If you can't have the information by intelligence, sometimes you just enter the Janine uh, refugee camp. It's not something that we are doing. I suggest it for the future. And uh, if we find that we can't have enough information. You enter to the to the refugee camp and you create a situation where those who are about to carry out their attacks are going to shoot at you and then you can either arrest them or uh, hit them. It's uh, because you are not going to have enough information anyhow. Uh, we are not going to ever have enough information. Let's talk about foiled terror attacks. Now, you were involved in intelligence. You gather intelligence and then you present it to whom and then they say, okay, now let's go and catch these guys before they actually do anything. How does that work out? Well, today it's working out on the lower level because we there's a green light to carry out arrests uh, wherever necessary. So this operation that's going this operation. on. So if you have information, you show it to the regional uh, commander. He will probably approve it, uh, depending on the availability of forces and uh, things like that. Well, of course, if he knows that uh, two guys are planning to carry out an attack and they are sitting in a certain house in uh, in Nablus or in uh, Jenin, and if you don't uh, hurry up, they are going to carry out the attack, he would approve it. And, uh, and this is the kind of information we have today. So we define attack, though. What what could it be? A knifing or stoning or what kind of usually level? The, the operations we are carrying out is not against knifing and uh, stoning. It's. Uh, Knifing can we can have an operation uh, in retrospect after there's a knifing attack we may try and have an operation in order to find the guy who carried it out. But most of the terror attacks that are planned and are foiled in the in this uh, process are terror attacks with firearms. Look, we we had uh, one successful prevention attack uh, against an, a group a cell of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that was developing rockets. Uh, that was uh, planned from uh, from Gaza, if you remember, the one of the guys that was killed in Gaza was in charge of that uh, effort. Uh, so these are the things that we are most focus, focused upon. When we enter the 
as I said in uh, some other interview, we don't enter Jenin refugee camp or Nablus because we have nothing to do in the afternoon or overnight. <laughs> we do that because we have to prevent, we fight against a real attempt to, carry, to kill Israelis. And uh, that's, that's a wide effort that we have to, to fight against. One major element of this fight is this ongoing uh, attempt to foil the terror attacks before they go out by entering these places. Second effort should be a defensive effort with more presence. And uh, a third effort should be on putting pressure on the Palestinian uh, authority and on the Palestinian population to help us put an end to this terror campaign. And the fourth uh, effort should be done on the level of uh, incitement, because if you don't deal with the incitement, whatever we do is going to be uh, short term. So let's talk about the Palestinian Authority. Abu Mazen is almost 90, if I'm not mistaken. 88 or 87. Okay. And I'm not an ageist. I'm sure he's doing just fine. His father died when he was 102. Wow, that is perspective. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm sure Israel is preparing for a post-Abu Mazen world. And what are we thinking so far? Well, frankly, nobody, including Abu Mazen, in my mind, doesn't know uh, what's going to happen after Abu Mazen. We got so used to Abu Mazen. First of all, his, his impact on the situation, even today, is becoming less and less. So we can see that what's happening. Secondly, uh, he has no clear successor. He's, he's grooming Hussein uh, Sheikh and uh, Majid Faraj, the head of the security apparatus, to be his uh, successors. But then they don't have the, the little uh, charisma that Abu Mazen has. Uh, they don't even have that. Uh, and, uh, and they are challenged by many people from within Fatah, by Muhammad Dahlan, by Mawan Baruti, by Jibril uh, Rajoub. Uh, by Lalul, uh, uh, everybody has a little more uh, charisma than they are, than they have, but it doesn't really matter. It's uh, all of them are committed to the same narrative that I mentioned before. So the, whoever is going to succeed the Bumazen uh, from within the Fatah is going to have the same narrative. But do you see that his successor will come within Fatah and not with Hamas, for instance? I, I think it's going to be, first of all, an effort by Fatah to succeed him. And uh, they will have to decide um, how they are going to do it. They might choose somebody like uh, Hussein Sheikh or somebody like that to, to, to succeed him in uh, most of his uh, responsibilities. They might uh, decide to have a joint leadership, understanding that the alternative is a... Uh, an internal struggle that nobody wants, uh, they might uh, fall apart. <laughs> That's also a possibility. They might just fall apart and everybody is uh, going to have a fifth dome of himself uh, where he has the most uh, power. And uh, the Balata refugee camp is not going to be cooperating with the Asuka refugee camp or with the Nablus town. And uh, that, that may well be the case. It's going to be, there's a clear possibility of uh, chaos. And what do you think is in Israel's interest at this point? You know, Israel's interest would be that uh, this would be an opportunity for the Palestinians to do some soul searching and uh, decide that this narrative led them nowhere. But the chance that this is going to happen uh, is not uh, that bright. 
so I think in the end of the day, in Israel interest is, would be that the Palestinian Authority will remain as a, as a tool, that, and that in the longer run, it would the content in this tool will be changed uh, in a positive direction. That the best thing we can uh, reasonably hope for. Uh, right now, this is uh, not necessarily going to be the case because the battle between the uh, diadox is going to be about who is more committed to the struggle against Israel, not who is more committed to cooperating with Israel. That's uh, unfortunately that's uh, that's what I see more likely to happen. And of course, there's also the worst possibility, which is Hamas taking over. Uh, I think we are going to take steps in order to prevent Hamas from taking over. But if there is a chaos, God knows. And uh, you see that Hamas is, is everybody is preparing for the day after. But inside Fatah, everybody is preparing separately. There's no um, organized joint effort of Fatah to prepare for the day after. Hamas does it in a more concentrated manner. Uh, so they are going to be maybe more uh, or better prepared on the, when the day comes. Where does uh, Islamic Jihad fit into this? Islamic Jihad doesn't have uh, aspirations to become the leader. They will probably cooperate with uh, Hamas uh, if if there is a need, but they don't think of themselves as contenders for leadership. But in the past several months, it seems like that's the organization that everyone has their eyes on now. Yeah, because they're the most active, because they don't abide by any other uh, considerations. Fatah has to think about what's going to happen with the population, uh, so does Hamas when it comes to the population in Gaza. Palestinian Islamic Jihad doesn't have to worry about what's going to happen to the population, so that gives them a lot of room to maneuver, and uh, they use it and, uh, until they get uh, knocked on the head. Uh, they keep doing that. Let's zoom out a little bit and now talk about how Iran fits into all of this. Well, Iran stands behind much of it. Much of it, they finance much of the activities of Palestinian Islamic Jihad and of Hamas. They support it with, tec- with technology that's needed for improving their weapons, and they uh, finance the, the efforts uh, through Hezbollah that uh, end up in uh, promoting the capabilities of the terrorists in the Judea and Samaria area. So they they are very much involved in that. They see that as a part of uh, their wider effort to wipe Israel off the map, and. Uh, they are committed to that, and uh, we see their efforts to strengthen Hezbollah and to strengthen their, their own, their own uh, presence in Syria, turn it into a base from which they can operate against Israel. And uh, this is the this is when it comes to Israel, the Iranian effort. But it sounds like it's all uh, military, it's all weaponry and things like that, and they're not in- interested in involving themselves into the political arms as well? Yes, but to a lesser extent, they they keep uh, some sort of uh, reasonable relations also with the Fatah, and uh, they might get involved in that as well. Uh, but uh, this is uh, this is not their bread and butter. Uh, they are much more connected to uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and to uh, Hamas leadership. And as you, as you actually, as we speak, uh, the leaders of Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad are having meetings in in Tehran. Uh, from time to time, somebody from uh, the uh, Fatah is also in touch with the Iranians and uh, conveys his uh, appreciation to their contribution to the struggle against uh, Israel. But the relations used to be even tighter in the past. They are not as tight today. They are reasonable between Fatah and, uh, and the Iran. I don't think they are as tight as to enable Iran to intervene in the inner uh, Fatah politics. Uh, we're not yet there. It might happen in the future, but uh, not, not not until now. 
Let's zoom out even further and talk about the Iran-Saudi constellation that's happening right now. Well, I think well, this is really an important development because uh, the general order, the structure of the Middle East is, is uh, the architecture of the Middle East is changing because the Middle East has been uh, divided between the pragmatists and the radicals in the last uh, 20 years or so. And uh, as a matter of fact, ever since the the Iranian regime came into power, came to power in uh, the 1979, uh, there was a battle between the pragmatists and the radicals. And, uh, and the radicals were made of three groups, uh, the Shiite radicals led by Iran, and the uh, Sunni sophisticated radicals led by the Muslim Brotherhood, including Turkey and Qatar and Hamas. And uh, Hamas is a special case because it belongs both to their sophisticated radicals, uh, Sunni radicals, and to the Shiite group as well because it has very close relations with Iran. And, uh, and there was the camp of the extreme radicals, extreme Sunni radicals, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these guys. Uh, this was the, this was the uh, situation in the Middle East. There was a struggle between the pragmatists and the, those groups. What happens now is that because and, and at that time the pragmatists believed that they would be able to rely on the United States as their supporter in, and to, to supply them with the security they need in order to flourish. Recently, the uh, pragmatists came to the conclusion that they cannot rely anymore on the United States and the West. And uh, it started with the JCPOA back in 2015 when they felt that they were thrown under the bus and together with us. <laughs> and it uh, went on but with some interruption during the days of Trump. And uh, with Biden's administration, they again got the, the feeling that they are uh, not treated well and uh, they are threatened. And uh, the attack in 2019 was uh, a major uh, turning point as well. The, attack, the Iranian attack on the uh, oil facilities in Saudi Arabia in 2019. So uh, what happened was that uh, Saudi Arabia under MBS came to the conclusion, or actually the pragmatists came to two conclusions. One was, we cannot rely only on the United States, let's be friends with Israel. That brought the, the Abraham Accords. And the other decision later on, when Biden came, was that we cannot rely on the, on the United States. Let's be friends with Iran and let's be friends with China. That is more that doesn't tell us every morning that we should be more democratic and more uh, respectful of human rights and uh, all these kinds of things. And uh, that do not fit us. It's, uh, we don't feel comfortable with that. And, uh, and this change led eventually to this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And we are, the, the tension between the pragmatists and the radicals has eased dramatically. It's not that they don't have, they don't still have opposite points of view and uh, world perspectives. Uh, they still have them. But they understand that they can cooperate. And from the Iranian point of view, it's very good because it eases the tensions on them and they can move on. And the United States, seeing that development, being very preoccupied with what's going on with China and what's going on with Ukraine and uh, Russia, uh, they, the most important thing for them is just not to end up in any uh, armed um, confrontation with anybody, including Iran. And that's why they are moving towards uh, some sort of understandings with the Iranians that would enable the Iranians to have 
big stockpile of uh, 60% enriched uranium that is actually their uh, threshold nuclear state. And the Americans are going to acquiesce with that, which is like, what? <laughs> but this is what's going to happen. And so, or at least it's uh, something that the Americans do not uh, take out of the, uh, or take off the table immediately and saying, oh, no, 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 never. They actually say, yes, uh, we are ready to, and the, the problem is whether the Iranians are going to be ready to, to do that or not, because from an Iranian point of view, it means that they have to take some commitments that they don't really need now. It's, uh, they, they export a lot of oil anyhow. Uh, they don't have shortage of funds uh, to the extent that would force them to give up on uh, enriching uranium be beyond 60%. If they're going to do it, it's only because the Israeli threat is still there. Yossi, our time is uh, drawing to a close. You've been in this business for a very long time. And so I wonder what specifically keeps you up at night right now? What worries me most is that that we should find a way to explain to this uh, to our friends and allies in, in the United States especially, but uh, in the entire Western world, that this is something that is not less important than what's happening in Ukraine. I'm not saying that what's happening in Ukraine is not important. It is, but it's not less important because there is one big difference. The uh, situation in Ukraine is, is a national dispute. The Russians are unhappy. You know, they made a terrible move and they behave in a very problematic way. But they don't try anymore to convince everybody to become communist. The idealism that stands behind it, behind it is, is very limited. It's about interest. Iran is motivated by a missionary ideology. They want to turn everybody into a, Muslim, into a Shiite Muslim. That's what they want to do. And uh, if we allow a group of messianic people like that to have nuclear weapons, this is going to be extremely dangerous. And everybody should be aware of that and should take the necessary steps in order to prevent that from happening. I'm happy that the Americans are saying that we shall not allow Iran to have nuclear weapons. But I look at what they're doing and I say to myself, there's some sort of contradiction here between what they're saying and what they're doing. And uh, this keeps me awake at night. Yossi, thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you very much. How can I talk about you in the past tense? You were just discharged from the army from the most strict of organizations and you were blooming. Now, when you're finally starting to live, fulfill your dream and settle the land you loved, now it has taken you into its earth. You are so beautiful. I would boast about you. Your eyes spoke silently, modestly, and everyone was blinded by your internal and external beauty. Those words were spoken by Yael, the mother of 21-year-old Har'el Masood, at his funeral this week. Many thanks to military correspondent Emmanuel Fabian and U.S. Bureau Chief Jacob Magid for their insights prior to my conversation with Brigadier General Yossi Kupervasser. This podcast was recorded by sound technician Jamal Rishek in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios and produced and edited by The Pod Waves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.